Hello, Next Picture Show listeners. Here's a friendly reminder that if you enjoy The Next Picture Show, you'll really enjoy getting more Next Picture Show by subscribing to our Patreon. You can get our weekly newsletter for $3 a month and unlock bonus episodes for $5 a month. You also get access to ad-free versions of the podcast. We recently released a new bonus episode on the many, many oddities of the 2021 Oscars ceremony, and later this week we'll be sitting down to discuss the new HBO mystery drama, Mayor of East Town. To subscribe to our Patreon, please visit patreon.com slash nextpictureshow. It's very difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. Do you believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being? We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us. Welcome to The Next Picture Show, a movie of the week podcast devoted to a classic film and how it shaped our thoughts on a recent release. I'm Tasha Robinson, here with Genevieve Kosky, Scott Tobias, Keith Phipps. American citizens are getting vaccinated against coronavirus, American movie theaters are reopening, and right now we're all starting to get our first invitations for films that won't have any home viewing options, either for critics previewing the movies or for viewers at home. Off on the horizon, we can see an era when we'll be returning to covering theater-only releases that we saw in theaters. But until then, we're still on our year-long quarantainment kick, pairing films you can find on VOD, cable television, or streaming services. This week, we're looking at two movies with both good and bad things in common, films we could discuss either from the highbrow angle of cultural appropriation and national identity, or the lowbrow angle of how dumb a movie can be and still be a blast. Personally, I'm choosing to consider this in terms of... I challenge you to combat for control of this podcast. God, why can we never get through one of these introductions without an interruption? Okay, what... I thought it was pretty clear. I challenge you to combat for control of this podcast. I know you aren't going to come down on the side of that particular critical dichotomy that I want to come down on. So I figured we'd fight it out. And once I've ripped your still beating heart out of your chest and shown it to you, I'll continue with my own choice. Why would I even want to look at my own still beating heart? Well, you wouldn't. That's the whole point. Now about that combat. (laughs) Look, what if I don't want to fight about this? What if I just let you choose how we're going to frame this conversation? Because, frankly, I'm really not feeling that level of intensity about this choice. What? But but you argue about everything on this podcast. You're always standing up for whatever weird ideas you get in your head about cinema. Also, I mean, a good heart-ripping recorded live would probably boost our listenership. Uh, Besides, I spent all this time honing my fighting spirit until it's unified with my body so that I can channel my warrior essence into supernatural powers the likes of which this world has rarely seen. And frankly, I don't get to use that often because I keep not running into otherworldly threats to the planet. I'm mostly just using to nudge other people out of the way at the supermarket. Can you just give me this? Nah, I mean, I like my still beating art where it is. Uh, I surrender. You have proved your might. You have claimed a flawless victory, blah, blah, blah. Damn it. I can't even remember the last time I got to rip someone's still beating heart out of their chest and show it to them. Yep, not sorry. As the champion of this podcast, you get to tell the listeners what we're talking about this week. Okay, fine. But if any of you interrupt me during this part, I will pull your still beating heart out of your chest and show it to you. With that established, this week we're talking about two different American films that came out of the tradition of Asian martial arts movies and that lean even further into fantasy and the uncanny than those movies normally do. John Carpenter's 1986 action comedy Big Trouble in Little China stars Kurt Russell as a hapless truck driver drawn into what initially looks like a war between Chinese street gangs in San Francisco's Chinatown. But the real threat turns out to be a malevolent spirit living in a vast underground kingdom, served by a variety of supernatural warriors and monsters, all of which Russell's character is completely unready to deal with. The dynamic that movie faces, where the steaming hero of the story is mostly a patsy and the real fighting forces of the story are his Chinese-American friend Wong and other capable warriors of Chinatown, gets mirrored in the new fighting fantasy Mortal Kombat, which introduces a mixed-race MMA fighter as the heir to a centuries-long fighting lineage, then watches as he mostly gets his butt kicked by various otherworldly monsters and warriors drawn from the Mortal Kombat game series. It's two Hollywood dramas built around martial arts combat, whether you spell combat with a C or a K, and it's about turning the familiar fantasy of martial arts throwdown movies into much bigger, more colorful fantasies, full of invisible lizard aliens and creepy critters in fursuits, with everyone fighting to defend their home turf. That's next up on The Next Picture Show. Uh, Speaking of which, anyone else want to fight to the death about, you know, anything? Scott, I'd be willing to rip your still-beating heart out of your chest in an argument about which is a worse movie stack, Milk Duds or Raisinets? I like both of those snacks. I don't know who wrote this script, but those are delicious. 
I'll pull your heart. How about that? Pull it right out of your chest. Uh, but but of course you remember that we're recording this uh, remotely, right? Oh yeah. Yeah. Right. See, my still beating heart is halfway across the city from me right now. Mm, stupid quarantinement. <laughs> Call it Little China. Finally, we shall bring order out of chaos. It's where big trouble was waiting for Jack Burton. Who? Jack Burton. Me. Jack. Jack. Jack! They told him to go to hell. He make one move. And that's just where he's going. Somebody, I don't care who, tell me what is going on. It's not all that surprising to learn that John Carpenter's Big Trouble in Little China originally started out as a period Western movie. In its broadest form, it has the feeling of Western. A lone gunman rides into town and finds a complicated local conflict going on, and probably at least one woman in peril. He's a little reluctant to get involved, because this isn't his town and these aren't his people. But he's a decent sort, and he winds up weighing in with the underdogs, using his superior shooting or fighting or just being tough skills to eventually turn the tide, facing off against the powerful enemy behind everything that's been going on. That is more or less how Big Trouble in Little China goes, and the way Kurt Russell plays protagonist Jack Burton as a swaggering outsider who speaks with John Wayne cadences certainly boosts that feeling. Except the Carpenter goes out of his way to subvert most of that dynamic. He knows what audiences are expecting, and he doesn't just think it's funny to give them something entirely different. He thinks it's more respectful to the other genre he's drawing on here, the Hong Kong-style supernatural martial arts throwdown movie, in the vein of his own youthful favorites, like 1972's Five Fingers of Death. Back in the 1980s, there was zero chance that Carpenter was going to get funding for a movie with an all-Asian cast, about an evil force trying to rise up in San Francisco's Chinatown bringing in Kurt Russell, who had already directed in 1981's Escape from New York and 1982's The Thing, let him put a white face on the movie. But he still felt it would be disrespectful to make the white man the hero of a Chinese fighting saga. So there's Russell, charging into every fight and usually making a fool out of himself, with no idea what's going on half the time. That closely mirrors the experience of the audience, as they try to untangle a plot that involves multiple Chinatown gangs, a ring of human traffickers, a centuries-old cursed spirit trying to return to mortality, a dragon hungry for human flesh, three martial artists with magical storm powers, and, for some reason, a beholder straight out of Dungeons & Dragons. There's a lot going on in this movie, and Jack Burton has no idea what any of it means. He's hilariously hapless. And the way Russell's performance undercuts all the usual expectations for a heroic type makes him even funnier. Big Trouble in Little China started out as a spec script from first-time writers Gary Goldman and David Z. Weinstein, who set the action in California in the 1880s, with the hero as a literal cowboy riding into town. A pair of producers bought the script, but felt the combination of the supernatural elements and the historical elements was too distracting and alienating for audiences. They wanted the script updated to the present. Goldman and Weinstein balked, so script doctor W.D. Richter, director of The Adventures of Buckaroo Banzai Across the Eighth Dimension, was brought in to heavily revamp the script. Carpenter called the original version, quote, outrageously unreadable, unquote, but it also brought him back to his own childhood fandom for martial arts films, and he agreed to direct. According to reports from Carpenter, Richter, and the film's actual lead, Dennis Dunn, Carpenter was heavily involved in retrofitting the script, particularly in eliminating elements he and the Asian cast felt were stereotypes or offensive. Carpenter actively wanted to be respectful to Asian culture and the martial arts movie tradition, and he consulted with his cast about potential tripping points and possible insensitivities more than 30 years before Disney got around to doing the same things with its movies and endlessly bragging about it. But when Kurt Russell talks about Big Trouble in Little China, He makes it sound like he came up with most of the film's best comic business. At the heart of the film, there's a Hong Kong supernatural plot where the villainous spirit Lo Pan, played by character actor James Hong, kidnaps the fiancé of Chinatown restaurant owner Wang Chi, played by Dunn. When Wang and Jack try to get her back, Lo Pan also seizes Chinatown lawyer Gracie Law, played by Kim Cattrall, and Jack and Wang spend the rest of the film trying to get the two women back except that Wang is a martial arts expert in the martial arts world, and Jack is a truck driver who can barely handle a gun. So as Russell tells the story, he invented a ton of goofy business where Jack knocks himself out before a fight or kills an assailant and ends up stuck underneath him. He also claims he conceived one of the movie's greatest subversive gags, where Jack and Gracie share a kiss, and Jack swaggers through the next big face-off with her cherry-red lipstick smeared across his face. 
That scene is typical for the tone of Big Trouble in Little China. Wang and Jack are facing long odds and tremendous threats, but the actors and director don't take any of it particularly seriously. And that ultimately hurt the film, not with the fans, but with the critics of the time, and particularly with the studio, which clearly didn't know how to market it. Big Trouble was the kind of box office flop that's destined to find a cult fandom over time because it's so different from everything else in the market. So colorful, so creative, and particularly so subversive. It's still a bit of a Western at heart, just enough to be recognizable, but it's a kitchen sink full of other things too. And it's the kind of movie that lingers in the cultural consciousness, mostly because there are too many things in it and about it that once you've seen, you're never likely to forget. Up to his office, Lopan's office. It's cooler up there from, from there we can. Do you have a gun, I hope? I have a knife. A knife? This guy's 12 feet tall! Seven. Hey, don't worry, I can handle him. I took something. I can see things no one else can see. Why are you dressed like that? I I, I was getting married. Okay, shall we uh kick it off with the usual kickoff? What's everybody's history with Big Trouble in Little China? And what does this film look like to you in a in an age that's much more sensitive about uh, portrayals of Asian Americans on film? So I did not see this film when it came out. So I guess I joined a lot of Americans in that. This would have been one year before I got my job at a movie theater and then started seeing everything uh, pretty regularly. So I missed it by a year. It didn't, probably didn't catch up with it until either late high school or college. But I, I've seen this film a dozen times if I've seen it once. I wrote about it, I think, for New Cult Canon. I saw a midnight screening of it in college, and I've returned to it when I can. I mean, it's just so... I just love it. I just think it's so much fun. It's got such a great tone to it. Uh, I love Kurt Russell in it. And I think that it's so smart about the way it mixes and matches genres, the way it toys with expectations in archetypes you know i mean things like i mean you know of course the, the you've got the kurt russell is john wayne thing and you have a lot of elements of the western in there but even stuff like the way it handles exposition it, it does it in a way that just that where it is courteous enough to the audience to know that the way the exposition is being revealed is kind of a joke in itself and it just has that kind of it's just a joyous experience to be this film i just i think it's it's goofy and fun it's just got a it's it's just does everything right. It's actually it's one of my favorite carpenters. It's not one of the you know he's done so many that are great and, I, and it's so many that I think that people think are better than this. Uh, but I think that I put this up there for him in terms of just films I just love to sit down and watch. I think it's very skillfully done and I can't I really honestly can't think of too much to find fault with here. But I think maybe just based on that question, <laughs> the way you pose that question, that maybe maybe I'm missing some things that I should be finding fault with. Well, I don't think that. Uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, Tasha, but I don't think you're necessarily like setting us up to take down all the offensive Asian stereotypes in this movie, because like, if you came to it wanting to do that, like, sure, like, uh, there's absolutely Asian stereotypes all over this movie. It's like, it's built to be that it like it uses Chinatown and, and Chinese culture and Chinese American culture as, as literal set dressing. But as you put it in your keynote, it seems very aware of the fact that it's doing that and it is doing it through the lens of homage to uh, what was always kind of a fantasy of Chinese culture and of martial arts culture, you know, like Kung Fu films. They're, they're, they're not like true to life of the Chinese experience necessarily. So, you know, it's a film that exists in a, in a heightened state to begin with. And I think if you're being generous and approaching the film on its own wavelength, you know, it's kind of easy to just accept that without getting too hung up on it. That said, we are recording this in 2021 in the midst of some really heavy conversations about violence toward Asian Americans and stereotyping and the racism that, that you know, is, is behind it. And this country has a, a terrible history with, uh, with Chinese uh, people in particular. They, they weren't allowed in the country for, for like 70 years. So all of that context is like there if you want to bring it to this movie and apply it and kind of rip this movie apart. But I don't think that's what any of us want to do because it is it is a fun movie. I'll like actually get to your question now, which is what my experience is with this film. And you know, I didn't think I had seen it before, but this this occasionally happens to me with movies that were released like in the late eighties, early nineties, is 
like we had family friends that had two boys who were uh, a few years older than me. And whenever we got together, uh, us kids would just kind of all get shoved together into the basement to entertain ourselves. And so they would watch movies <laughs> that were, you know, maybe a little, a little advanced for me at whatever age I was at. So I have like all these kind of like slight memories of, of certain movies that I saw when I was like six or seven that were like not age appropriate. Arachnophobia is one. And that's like, <laughs> Where my where my big fear of spiders <laughs> came from, and as it turns out, I th- I'm pretty sure this is another. I didn't have strong, obviously, I didn't have strong memories of this because I didn't think I had seen it before. But watching it for this, I, there were definitely there was imagery that I'm like, oh, I have definitely seen this before. The one that really stuck out to me was the what what did you call him the the eyeball guy beholder the beholder yes that is definitely that <laughs> is just like carved into the deep recesses of my like seven year old brain or you know however old I was when I first saw this movie at, at way too young of an age. But again, for all intents and purposes, this was my first my first time watching it. And it, it was a lot of fun. And I, I admit that I did have to kind of quiet the part of my brain that just kind of had these like, oh, stereotype siren going off, <laughs> you, you, you know. But it is, like you said, a, a fun movie. It really kind of like draws you in. And it, it, it seems like respectful, not only of its subject matter but also like you said of of the audience i think scott you you said that you know like the exposition in this movie can be i'll say charmingly clunky uh at at times and Mm -hmm. and i I would wager purposely so yeah and kurt russell is an absolute hoot uh throughout this (laughs) this movie Uh, i I really just enjoy the the dirtbag charm he brings to it and also like maybe the hottest I've ever found Kurt Russell. I don't know what that says about hmm. me, but 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 here we are. Is it the, the boots? boots? The good boots. Moccasin boots. <laughs> yeah. But yeah. I, I, Is it I the had... lipstick? Are you just kind of into dudes with lipstick on? Because he rocks that lipstick. <laughs> he, he really does, you know, and I, I would say he, he does so with confidence, but I don't know if you can be confident without being aware of what you're doing. <laughs> um, but But yeah. I mean, I'm definitely not uh, suggesting that we have to tear this movie apart. I did not intend to phrase that in a way that would come across as, oh, my God, Becky, rip her to shreds. <laughs> but uh, like, it's it's just it's something that we have to be aware of. And I, I do think that it plays differently now than it played in 1986. And I was curious how that kind of impacted everybody's reaction to it, everybody's response to it. Keith, what are your thoughts? Um, I'm, I'm a big fan of this film, and which I also did not see until fairly you know, in the last 20 years or so. I don't think I saw it until it came out on DVD for some reason, but but I've seen it, uh, you know, quite a few times since then. It's very entertaining, very entertaining. And, and and as for the, I don't know, I learned a long time ago that I'm not the person who should be saying this is offensive, this isn't offensive, if, if it's not uh, as, as an outsider to that. Because I remember once telling someone that I Love Dogs was kind of a goof on Westerners' idea of what Japan was rather than a goof on Japanese stereotypes. And I think maybe that might be based on that film was how it was received. I I realize that now that may be a distinction without a difference. But for this, I mean, I I think I put it in the context of of the times. And I just think, you know, in 1986, uh, this is this is light years beyond a lot of representation of Asian characters. I mean, we're only two years out from Sixteen Candles at this point. I mean, perhaps that's that's a low bar for anything to clear. But I do think you know it, it treats characters with respect. Uh, the fact that the know-it-all white guy is you know a clown at heart is a, a, a is a movie long joke. That kind of goes a long way to diffusing possible objections. Um, I don't know. I, I, I also just think it's it's super fun. I it, and it's a film like I said I've seen quite a few times, but I really kind of forget what's happening next. Like it's oh yeah, there's the floating eye, there's the fur creature. <laughs> you know, if you ask me why the characters are at a certain place at any particular time, I probably couldn't explain it to you, but it's just kind of one of those things I just- It's because it I just looks kind of cool. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. It's the driving logic behind so much of this. So I was like, yeah, it looks cool. Seems cool. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think it's a pretty important part of the film that Jack be so inept most of the time. You know, I mean, I, I think that if you have a movie where a white character comes in and has all of the swagger and is able to kick butt and save the day. I mean, he gets one moment, you know, in one moment that just pays off so beautifully with the, with the knife, you know, mm-hmm. it's the whole, it's all in the reflexes thing. And that one moment is something that speaks to Carpenter's 
skill at setting it up you know setting it up at the beginning with with uh with wang trying to cut that bottle in half and and him catching it like that and saying it's all in the reflexes and so you're ready you're ready for him to ha- to have that kind of reaction later at least it's that that's that seed is planted in your head and it pays off in a very pleasing way so uh, it's 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 critical i think i think wang is a real character i mean they're they're it's a great buddy movie on top of everything else and i, and I like this sort of ragged team of people that kind of come together to fight this evil spirit you know this um you know journalist and sort of a sort of a wise cracking damsel in distress type uh who's who's uh you, you mean know, lawyer gracie law funny. <laughs> Why? That Gracie God, Law, why? right? Why? Which I actually think this might be the first time I made that connection because I'm really dumb. But it's like, wait, oh it's God, Gracie I didn't even Law. Think about that. She's, she's a lawyer. I did not think of it. It's the laziest. It's, uh, it's like if uh, Jack Burton waltzed into the screen, like, "Hi, I'm Jack Truck Driver." I mean, well, uh, but actually, I, I actually had the thought because, like, he, he runs Burton Trucking. Like, it's there on on his truck. So there is kind of something about like the uh, you know surnames being attached to your profession here. It's very literal, is all I'm saying. (laughs) I mean, I saw this movie for the first time in the 1990s amid a bunch of other kind of like weird. I saw it about the same time I saw Buckaroo Banzai. I saw it about the same time I saw a a number of kind of edging up to soft core, like weird, like ice pirates kind of stuff. You know, these sort of like mishmash genre tales that are like headed a little in the direction of like there's there's somebody that swaggers and there's some tna and there's some weird effects and that's really all that matters and then the rest of it can just kind of take care of itself so it kind of is bunched into my head along with all of these things i saw this movie before i had ever seen a john wayne western and watching it this time (laughs) that was the biggest difference for me the second kurt russell like spoke his first line i just started laughing Mm -hmm. because it's it's honestly a, a pretty hilarious like movie long imitation he always had some john wayne in him but i mean in this one he might as well just be like wearing the, the hat that wayne wears in searchers it's pretty delightfully ridiculous and i flinched a little at some of the early stuff that goes on like the introduction of egg shen uh, played by victor wong who's the really really longtime character actor because it does feel very uh hollywood stereotypes of the time it, it does feel like we're headed into a direction that we're familiar with with like the funny, inept, ineffectual, uh, mysterious orient uh, version of Asian characters. And then the movie rarely gets there. It almost feels like it only gets there clearly in that opening scene, which Carpenter was forced by the studio to tack on because the studio was afraid that the people wouldn't understand that Jack Burton was the hero if they just watched the film. <laughs> uh, so like that, that whole scene was added after the fact to gear people up to sympathize with him a little more than they would from the rest of the film and egg shen and it feels a lot more a lot more like a a bad asian stereotype than he does anywhere else in the movie which i I think is very interesting but it, it just really struck me that in the early dynamic of the film wang does seem like the sidekick he he defers to russell all the time he he loses the bet he loses at fantan he loses at whatever they're playing uh he's constantly kind of trying to like suck up to jack and get clemency out of him for his uh his various failings and when he starts talking about the girl that he's importing from china it sounds like he's just setting himself up for misery uh for this this girl he hasn't seen in forever and doesn't know the movie sets him up for failure in a whole lot of ways and the fact that he comes forward bit by bit as this person who like who knows chinese history who knows the supernatural oddities who knows the culture of chinatown and eventually knows martial arts like that's that's also one of the great subversions of the movie and it's kind of a lot of fun to discover him over time this film really feels very wd Richtery. you know like that rewrite mattered a lot I guess made a completely different film because uh, Buckaroo Banzai, the pleasure of that film too, was just a self-awareness that uh, that also translated into great entertainment or sort of rollicking sort of shaggy dog like entertainment. I mean, that was sort of what Buckaroo Banzai too, this big nonsensical adventure that you just kind of get swept along in and it's full of memorable quotes, you know, wherever you go, there you are being the most famous. And I was thinking about 
you know, certain standout moments in the film. I mean, my favorite being when Lopan says, this really pisses me off to no end. Because <laughs> it's just, it, 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 to me, that just kind of crystallizes the film's willingness or, or you know, ability to, to just kind of play with expectations, to be willfully silly, to take a character who we, who is this, you know, ancient centuries old, you know, demon on earth and give him this line that is so comically anachronistic and also funny in the sense that he's just like it's like a, a petty annoyance that's being expressed <laughs> i just i love that and I, and I think the movie has that built-in ability um to have moments like that in it i mean it, it does not take itself seriously at all and it, it really is kind of keyed into making you know hitting all the making it just as it is pleasurable experience for the audience as possible i mean it's a real generous entertainment i think but just in the same way that the, the i felt the exact same way about uh, about Bonsai that i do here that this narrative is just messy as hell like it, it feels like a bunch of stuff was either like left on the cutting room floor or like added in when he was drunk and then he forgot about it i i don't know why there's a journalist running around promising to record all of this who doesn't has a, a lot of screen time but no significant role here i don't know why she gets her own little side romance i don't know why there's a fur monster running amok down in the basement i don't know why they you gotta have a fur monster that's why it's yeah. a better also movie that, if you have a also fur monster. Problem, it's our sequel that we didn't get <laughs> yeah no, there, there is that it, it can be a double feature with the buckaroo bonsai sequel but i, I kind of got imagined a, a franchise where where burton jack burton wanted to you know all different <laughs> types of genres of movies you know or just like, a whole bunch of uh, other people's cultures where he has no idea what's going yeah. on but you know <laughs> yeah. there's the fact that they wander down into the underworld and they make their way back up from it and then they realize they didn't ever get the thing that they came for and they go back down into it like it's just it's weird messy storytelling and i'm wondering if you guys think that that just adds to the charm or if this <laughs> movie would benefit from being straightened out slightly well so i i uh, was interested to hear you talk about that uh, opening scene as being one that the uh, studio wanted to tack on but not in the context of like egg's characterization but in how it introduces the supernatural into this story right up front and you know i'm not sure if this is the case, but I suspect that like th it may have been more satisfying if the supernatural element just kind of crept up on you, you know, with that first big, big alley fight and the three storm dudes, you know, like, I, I think it would have been better to experience that surprise alongside Jack rather than just kind of be waiting for this thing to happen that we already know is going to happen. So that kind of feels like an attempt to maybe make the storytelling a little less messy, but that also perhaps takes away some potential like fun or discovery that could have been uh, there. I, I don't know. What do you guys think about how the supernatural is, is revealed here? That scene feels uh, unnecessary uh, to me. I mean, I, I kind of forgotten it even existed and then watching it this time. I, I remember it opening with uh, the Pork Shop Express rolling into town. And yeah, it, it felt entirely extraneous to me. I, yeah, but I, one thing I like about that is this introduction of the supernatural. I do like that little sleight of hand that we see from him, where we get a little bit of that elect electricity that kind of comes in in fuller force you know, later in the movie. I don't, I don't mind that. I don't, I don't mind the opening th that much. I mean, I, I, you know, obviously the film could do just fine without it. And I don't think we need to be told that Jack Burton turned out to be a brave and important part of this, you know, adventure, but it's not, it's not a complete loss. I just loss. hate opening bookends that don't have closing bookends. You know, if you're going to have a frame story, it should be a wraparound frame, not a one-sided frame. And it feels like a really, yeah. really one-sided frame here. No, that's 100% true. The only flaw, the only flaw is otherwise unimpeachable Now all of the water is just going to leak out for Scott as he, he slowly realizes. I know. Why are you trying to, what, what's the word? Something about you're trying to like uh, deny me fun or whatever it is that I'm supposed to you do. You do on the internet to people. Let when people they, enjoy things, I believe. That's it. You're, you're not letting for. me enjoy wow. things. Wow. That was a really, really mangled meme. Thank you. Thank, thank you, Scott, Dad, for yes. dad joking the, the internet memes. 
I think what really throws me in this movie is just the whole Lopan thing. Like he's mm-hmm. a an intangible spirit who can't touch anything and all he wants is to have a body again, which makes him mortal, which means his enemies can kill him, all of which feels a little silly. But then on top of that, he also has this like ancient mortal body that hangs around. Uh, yeah. And can clearly touch things and is also a shipping magnet. It's just, it's a lot of things. And I find it very hard to reconcile all those things. In the same way, I kind of find it hard to uh, reconcile, like, as they're heading down into the un- underworld originally, uh, Wang keeps saying, oh, this is this is the hell of this specific thing, which there are a lot of Chinese hells. And it's like we found ourselves in them, but we haven't really because it's we're not in hell. We're just in a room in this giant underground cavern. I don't know. To me, it feels like a whole bunch of uh, mythology just kind of uh, smushed pretty randomly together. I, I mean, I, I I know what you're talking about, Tasha, and I had sort of a similar, like, what is this character reaction to, to David Lopan? I don't think I would have, like, naturally put together the decrepit old guy with, the like, the really disturbing old age makeup. That was another thing that was, like, carved in my, in the folds of my child brain was just like that really modeled skin effect, which I find very upsetting. But like, I don't think I would have put together that that was the same character if James Hong didn't have such like recognizable intonation. And it was like very clearly the same actor. But as far as like sort of the underworld hell of this hell hell of that like there's a lack of grandeur i guess to, to this underworld like it really does feel like we're in the basement of a warehouse <laughs> you know for for the the whole film but it doesn't really take away for me because there's such a there's just such a set bound quality <laughs> to to this feel, film like those underworld scenes all feel like constructed sound stages so it just kind of feels like we're in this complex <laughs> of you know different cool places to have fights this is where i'm getting confused because were they literally in supposed to be in the underworld cuz i always thought it was just just the the uh, uh the complex right. underneath uh, the, the, it, the, well uh, that's kind of like i i i think <laughs> the point like does it matter? <laughs> you know, do, do, yeah. uh, you know do, do, does it matter if this is like actually the underworld or if they just, I don't know, like are in some parallel realm that still has the same physical appearance as our realm? But I, I it, No, I thought it was a bunch of monsters hanging out underneath the, the in the tunnels beneath the building. I'm, I'm not even kidding this. I, I never really took it as a literal journey into the underworld. Yeah. Do I understand this movie? <laughs> Gracie Law is a lawyer. I finally get that. Like, how many times do I have to watch this movie before I actually understand what's going on? At least on? eight more times before you understand the beholder like why is there why is there flying eye creature i mean as we're talking about all the the really random elements the way that you talk about elements and and visuals from this movie sticking with you genevieve for for me from the first time i saw it it was it was the beholder it was the the weird eyeball creature it hanging out on the floor at david lopan's wedding and and sticking out like an an arm-like tongue with an eyeball on it to like lick its own face like how could you forget something like that I thought it was a really memorable effect. But when I started digging into kind of contemporaneous reviews of of the thing, an awful lot of the critics specifically trashed the effects in this movie and just thought they were garbage. It was the same house that did the effects for Ghostbusters, but Ghostbusters was uh, like a five and a half million dollar contract job. And this was like a two million contract job. But people were specifically comparing the eyeball monster to to Slimer, which was sort of a, a similar effect in terms of uh, a puppet and a series of mats. And like it, comparing the lightning effects to Ghostbusters lightning effects and, and so forth. I honestly think that the effects here are one of the, the big charms of the movie. And I'm curious mm-hmm. if anybody had that response of like, oh, these look cheap. Oh, I mean... Yes and yes, in a way. I mean, it's like, yeah, they they do seem. I think there's kind of a a certain kind of low budget aesthetic that Carpenter carried through a lot of these films. I mean, these this uh, this part of his career from the beginning of his, of his career through this. I guess Starman's a little bit slicker later on, but like, I think all that stuff is to the positive. And I think, I mean, I think people complain about the effects in the thing, and the thing's got things got some of the best special effects I've ever seen. I mean, I think there's just a matter of like how much you just appreciate what the intent of the effects are. I mean, I, I find the eyeball creature this charming in its way as Slimer for uh, in Ghostbusters. I like the eyeball creature. And I, you know, another thing I like too, I like the fact that when 
one of the storm guys it literally blows up i like that it feels like just a bit like a like a sack of laundry that's been thrown out of the hallway <laughs> I, mean, I, I i love that effect it's just a, it, it's like it's obviously not expensive again it suits the film's mission just fine yeah i mean it it's it's a very movie feeling movie like it's not in any way going for realism which again is why like i'm i'm not getting too hung up on you know how does this underworld warehouse thing work you know it's not about realism you know it's it's not about necessarily creating a world and i say that as someone who really enjoys movies that like successfully create a world out of, out of whole cloth and it feels immersive this doesn't necessarily feel immersive it feels like we're having a show put on for us like the you know the you can see that the effects are happening you can see that acting is happening you can see that there's a set and it's like it's a production and i think that is just as valid a a movie watching experience as you know watching a slick seamless perfectly constructed blockbuster yeah one thing another thing i really like about this movie too is that is that you can feel what it's like to be you know, even though i was watching this thing at home i've seen it in a theater before but you can you can feel the moments built in where it was going to pay off for an audience and an audience was going to loot, you know, clap or get excited. And, and it just, I think Carpenter just understands so intuitively what those moments are and how, how to stage those payoffs and how to kind of hang on a certain moment to really kind of let it, you know, sink in. And it's just, it's so, it's a treat, you know, to kind of like be in the hands of somebody who is that sort of mindful of how an audience uh, you know might react to a film so that, that was a that was kind of a big pleasure for me uh, watching it this time was just kind of noticing those little moments like that that i'm sure if i saw it in a crowded theater people would be you know wh- whooping and cheering so there are three different romances in this film one of them between Dwayne's cousin eddie and the journalist who is played by kate burden and is for some reason not named uh margo journalist or margo journalism <laughs> no, it'd, be, it'd be like margo pen or something uh anyway that that particular romance i think we only know is a romance because the characters seriously inform us that is a, a romance in keeping with this film's habit of exposition we're just told she is interested in him and at the end she kind of says i am interested in you and that's that's, that's pretty much it. But then we've got Jack Burton and and Gracie Law, the law talking lawyer, who laws law, uh, kind of doing the damsel in distress uh, hero thing in their own very subverted ways. And then we've got Wang and his uh, childhood sweetheart, sweetheart, Mao Yin, played by Susie Pai, who spends most of the movie like literally as an inanimate object uh, waiting mm-hmm. to be rescued. But their reunion is actually both sweeter and more passionate than I would I would think was coming just based on everything that happened before that. Do any of these romances land for you? Do, do any of them work as romances? How do you how do you take them? I think Russell and Kim Cattrall are really fun together. I think I think Cattrall is a really fun performance in this. She understands what this movie's tone ought to be and 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 you know stays with it. And I think the her sort of like attraction repulsion to uh, uh, to Kurt Russell throughout this movie is, is played uh, really well. Um, down to the point where I actually you know I actually believed that you know when they kissed, I believed that uh, she was into him at that point. Uh, I, I don't know. I think it's a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. As a romance, is, is it like the greatest romance <laughs> ever depicted on screen? Uh, no, I don't he, know about that. He like but casually it's, 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 walks away from film. it like, eh, we'll, we'll yes, see. <laughs> Archie, are you going to say goodbye? Archie to kiss her? Archie, no, no. He, she's, he, I'll kiss he, her goodbye, the, yes. Yeah, yeah. Archie going to even kiss her goodbye? I just, I love that, though. That's, uh, again... I felt a lot of Han Solo energy coming off of him uh, mm. in in just specifically the romantic aspects of this movie. You know, he's he is too busy being a rogue who buys his own bullshit to actually give into it. And at the the moment where the the kiss happens, he's very into it. But then when he sees the opportunity to pull the "I love you, I know" uh, kind of thing, he he does. I, I don't know. Maybe it was just a, a thing of the era uh, expected out of men. I think, as with so many other things, it's a it's a fun little subversion because it's surprising. It's it's not uh, conventional, but it it does leave the connection between them on kind of a weird sour note. Like, would you like to go to the trouble of a kiss? No, that seems like too much trouble. I'm 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 gonna just walk away. Yeah, I would compare this to kind of. I think this is kind of a superior version of the dynamic that we get. 
between Harrison Ford and Kate Capshaw in the second Indiana Jones movie. The dynamic seems kind of similar, the kind of uh, flirty, but kind of also, you know, a lot of... uh, Antagonizing each other. Right, exactly. Antagonizing yet flirty, right. I think this handles it more charmingly and less less expectedly in in the way that you say. I mean, Kurt Russell's character, the the way his performance recalls John Wayne, I think, uh, you know, that that's more thoroughly imagined, I think, than just Russell's performance. I think it is, is a way of kind of examining and, and subverting the sort of masculine hero that John Wayne represents. Because, I mean, you can imagine, I mean, John Wayne wouldn't come within 100 feet of playing somebody like Jack Burton. <laughs> the sort of things that Jack Burton does, that level of self-deprecation, you know, him sort of piecing out of the end. Maybe, well, actually, maybe John Wayne would have done that. But there is kind of this silliness, a willingness to kind of like, to wear lipstick, to be less of a tough guy that is so deliberate and uh, so kind of refreshing, I think. So I don't want to pave over anybody else that you you guys want to talk about in this film. There is a, a really big cast. There's a lot going on. And as I think Keith pointing out that Kim Cattrall really knows what kind of movie she's in. There are actors here who definitely don't know what kind of movie they're in. Like literally Peter Kwong, who played uh, Rain, one of the the Storm Boys, has been quoted as saying he he did not realize this was a comedy. Of course, most of the scenes that he was in weren't comedic, but he didn't realize that this wasn't like just a legit like action supernatural epic until the very end of the movie. But uh, like all of these performances are kind of like operating at different pitches and conveyed in different ways. And that doesn't make them bad. Like, I, I think that Victor Wong's version of Egg Shen is very wink wink a lot of the time. You know, the, the scene, <laughs> scene where he tells everybody that he's going to like get them to drink this magic potion. And then when asked what the <laughs> effects are going to be, he's like, it gives you a hell of a buzz. Like, <laughs> there's there's a lot to be delighted in in his performance. And I think in Hong's performance, which is just he's eating up his big, flexible, many faced villain role uh, in, a, in a major way. I'm curious who stands out for you here. I mean, I think we've kind of touched on most of them, but I'm going to kind of use this as a springboard back into your your previous question about about romances, because I, I kind of want to talk about Miao Yin and you know, I guess her relationship with Wang. And I think you said, Tasha, briefly that like, you know, that relationship ended up being like a lot kind of sweeter than you were bracing for. And I share that sentiment. Like, I think one of the smartest things this film did at least as far as like that character and that relationship as little of it as we get is it did make them childhood friends because this is a movie that you know where human trafficking is just like kind of there in the background and we're you know going back to stereotypes you know we could have very easily gotten into like chinese bride territory here you know so i think by giving them a backstory together, how, however brief, and making it an actual, you know, love relationship that all this other stuff happened to to get in the way of, you know, it sidestepped uh, some some potentially you know thorny territory that it, the movie is arguably still kind of playing in. You know, there's that whole brothel scene that is just kind of waved away. But yeah, like Meow Yin does not do much. You know, she she's more or less catatonic for for most of the movie. But she's beautiful, you know, and she's arresting to look at, which I guess is kind of the the idea here, you know, uh, with the, the green eyes and all. But it's hard to like call it out as like a standout performance. But I think just as like kind of a, another element in this movie, they pull it off just in terms of like the actress they chose, the performance she gave to the extent there, there was a performance to give and the, the information they gave us about that character. Uh, yeah, and I think I think Dennis Dunn's performance as Wang helps a lot to kind of sell it mm-hmm. too. I think there's a, there's quite a, quite a lot to this character because he is in this urgent situation where somebody he cares about is in huge danger, and so and you and you have to feel that for one, and then you also have to appreciate his you know how he functions as you know part of this sort of buddy comedy as somebody who can have a nice back and forth with jack burton who knows who jack is can kind of give as good as he gets that sort of thing you know and then of course he has all of this uh, fighting skill as well so uh, i i think that's a i think it's a good character and uh, kind of a necessary 
a character again. You know, I think, I mean, uh, you know, Kurt Russell's self-deprecation, uh, the self-deprecation of that character, Jack Burton, uh, goes gets to some of the way there. But I think you need Wang to give the movie the, the balance that it, it needs um, to work. He's so sincere. He's so earnest. I mean, whether he's swearing he can cut a bottle in half or he's uh, trying to fight his way through a long series of antagonists in order to get back to his childhood girlfriend, he's just very, very sincere. And to some degree, I mean, Kurt Russell is doing the sidekick thing here. He's being big and weird and loud and silly. So the the actual hero of the story can be straight-laced and sincere and, and full-hearted and not seem like a chump in the process. Like, he hangs out with somebody who's looser and more playful than he is. So he's not a, a boring square. He's not a stuffed shirt. But he can still be very, very sincere in a very appealing way at the same time. Yeah, I mean, he doesn't know he's a sidekick. Uh, Jack Burton does, which is part of the pleasures of that performance. He, he, I don't think, I think he leaves the movie not knowing <laughs> that he's a psychic or, you know, not knowing much of anything. He knows, I think he may actually be less enlightened as he leaves the film than, than when he came into it. He also doesn't think he's the hero though. Like, you, you know, yeah. like he, he just, he got his truck back. That's what, that's what he wanted. <laughs> and, he, and he got his money. He got <laughs> the, the check for the money that he was yeah. owed at the beginning. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to leave you with this uh, tragic thought. There was a, a pretty good uh, oral history of this movie in uh, EW um, before the 2016 election happened, before Trump was elected president, but during a period where he was in the news a lot. And screenwriter W.D. Richter talked about how he, he thought that Trump was a very Jack Burton figure. And he, he basically hmm. said in this interview, if Trump hadn't been born into wealth, he probably would have been exactly like Jack Burton and just kind of a belligerent know-nothing who's perfectly confident that he always has the right solution to things. And reading that, I just I had a moment of like, how could you look at somebody who caused as much chaos as he did in the American political landscape and compare him to this charming character. And then I was like, oh, it was a completely different world back in uh, summer of 2016. But uh, that's just a, just a little image to put on top of this whole film for you there. I think the fact that Jack Burton does, however reluctantly, do something good for someone else, I think kind of rules that out. Although I think the, the, the rest of it stands up pretty well. Yeah, and I think we understood Trump to be a harmless buffoon in the 80s uh, before he became a, a harmful, uh, the harmful buffoon who became president. I mean, he was right up until he became president. He was an overconfident idiot. Um, and uh, and so if there was any charm to that, that goes away when the, when uh, there end up being real world consequences. So uh, uh, I don't know. It's, it's interesting comparison, I think. But again, but uh, the, the one major difference here is that Donald Trump is incapable of self-deprecation, incapable, you know, or any kind of modesty. I, I think he's incapable of, of uh, empathy, of, of doing something for somebody else, of, of being genuinely heroic. In that sense, he's nothing like uh, Jack Burton. Well, it's funny in a way. I don't know that Jack Burton himself would uh, consider himself to be doing anything altruistic here. I don't know that Jack Burton himself would have any sense that he's being heroic. Uh, he He's just kind of charging forward and, and operating in his own planet. And I think that's a lot of what makes the movie work. But we're going to have more to say specifically about his his hapless brand of heroism and the kind of the specter of the hero that doesn't know what he's doing when we bring this film together next week with Mortal Kombat. And until then, we should probably wrap this up and get to a little feedback. It's time for feedback when our listeners weigh in with their responses to recent episodes and anything else in the world of film. Let's start with Ed from Harrisonburg, Virginia, uh, asking a question inspired by last week's pairing of Shiva Baby and Rachel getting married. Scott, could you read this one? Uh, Sure. Ed writes, as the child of a recovering alcoholic, uh, more than 20 years sober, I've had the opportunity to go to a few AA meetings on my father's sobriety anniversary. As a result, anytime I see such an event depicted on film, I think about how unique and good a storytelling device such an affair is. You can use it for exposition, character development, character breakthrough, and even more. And it doesn't seem forced or unnatural because the event is designed for such sharing. What actual real-life event functions the same way for you? And that if it weren't real, the movies would have to invent it. 
honestly, my first thought when I read this question was uh, the family reunion. I constantly think of August Osage County and how little I liked that movie because it's so histrionic. It's it's so fraught. Everybody in that movie seems to absolutely loathe everybody else in their family. But it's such a good story mechanic, you know, bringing a whole bunch of people who have a whole lot of long simmering emotional tension with each other into one space for the the space of a weekend. Often it's based around somebody's birthday or somebody's anniversary. You get the exact same thing with stories about funerals, just that compressed we're bringing the whole family together around a situation that's fraught and everything is that's been boiling under as we've been separated sometimes for years is now going to come to the surface. I just think that uh, any any sort of like forced family reunion, I guess you could say the same thing about weddings, any sort of forced family reunion where everybody comes together in one place, usually for the first time in a long time, is just uh, an instant powder keg and a, a very cinematic and often very theatrical. It's, it's also a, a really big uh, stage device kind of way for storytelling. My mind went immediately to the courtroom interrogation, something that uh, always, always plays more dramatically on, on screen than in real life or most of, of the time. And that's a different dynamic than, a, than an AA meeting or even like, like a family event where, you know, sort of revelations are given willingly or freely, freely by the, the character who we are, who are learning things about. And that's not necessarily the case with courtroom interrogations, but there's also this other tension in those scenes that, you know, there, there isn't when, you know, it's a, a freely given laying bare of, of the soul in, in, in those other scenarios. So, um, you know, and then kind of a, a related scene is the like police interrogation Another thing that is, you know, like easily dramatized, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like easily dramatized for character moments or for you know heightening tension and stuff. But yeah, that's where my brain went. But I mean, honestly, I think what Ed says here about like AA meetings as storytelling devices is like it is maybe the the, the best example I, I can think of. Um, I I recently rewatched season five of The Wire and was reminded of the how Bubbles gets like some really great. He gets like a, a two scenes at uh, at AA that kind of like serve as bookends of each other, and it's just like a really beautiful denouement for that character, I guess. And also the uh, the sitcom Mom, which is is coming to an end soon, but is you know v- very good. I would I would recommend checking out Mom if you haven't before. Um, and it is about reco- recovering addicts, and pretty much every episode includes a scene at AA, and like the the main character is all gather and talk. And it's, it's interesting to see that storytelling dynamic in a comedic context because AA and NA scenes are always usually, you know, very sort of stoic and, you know, dr- or dramatic. So seeing them in a comedy context is, you know, interesting, I think. Maybe I'm just inspired by Scott's recent rewatch of The uh, Sopranos, but I, I think, they, you know, in terms of real world situations that, that are natural storytelling devices, you, you've got the therapist visit too as oh, well. Of course. Yeah. And, you know, I think it's so key to that show in addition to the relationship between tony and dr melfi being such a such a a rich one you know you have this sort of crazy unfamiliar world unless someone on this podcast or listen to it as part of the mafia uh, that's uh unfamiliar (laughs) to most of us uh world and you kind of have this this you know step back and into a world that's a little more familiar to kind of sort out what's what's going on even though dr melfi is very often not getting a full accounting of of, of uh, what tony's been up to but you know the, the, you know not to do on that that one show but it's certainly a uh setting that's, that's been used quite effectively and, and, and badly as well uh, i've seen the movie color of night um <laughs> to uh to move the plot along man Richard Rush's body is not even cold, man. You're going after Color at Night. He, he made anyway. many fine films and also Color at Night. <laughs> uh, um, I, I, my, my brief, I guess, answer to this would be the boxing ring. There's a reason mm. why more great films have been made uh, about boxing uh, than any other sport. Uh, it is a literal arena in which characters can work out their aggression, their pain, uh, their sense of self, their sense of, you know, where themes of masculinity and resilience and uh, all of that stuff could get played out in the uh 
great ballet, the bloody ballet of the <laughs> of the boxing ring. And the sweet uh, and science. Are you talking the sweet, sweet science? science? And, and, and I mean, you can appreciate sometimes the beauty of it, but also the brutality and violence and, and senselessness of it at all. It, it, there's just so much that gets resolved or expressed, you know, wordlessly in the boxing ring in, in, in movies. And, um, you know, in, in that's, again, the reason why so many boxing movies are fantastic. I'll throw in one that kind of resonates with what both Genevieve and Keith uh, came up with. When you're talking about being like put on display in the box or kind of uh, confessing in the, the therapist's office, both of those things make me think of Catholic confessionals and hmm. how perfectly they're designed for somebody telling their deepest secrets in the dark, like getting something off their chest, but also exposition, also explaining like their deepest fears and the the things that they feel guiltiest about to somebody who is not allowed to speak to anybody else. It's a, it's a way of getting something out into the story while guaranteeing that it's not supposed to go anywhere else, at least if, uh, you know, the priest who's listening is doing their job. And, you know, is actually a priest and uh, not any of the many other things that sometimes end up in the other side of the confessional booth for drama purposes. It's also just a very visually interesting setup, kind of naturally. Like, you can do a lot of really cool cinematic tricks with the confessional booth. Sure. And, with, and with light and shadow. And and with, and, yeah. Yeah. And, and they never have been to confession. Like they have last time that they've ever been to confession is always like thirty years before or something like that. <laughs> Nobody ever goes regularly. Well, of course not. That wouldn't be drama. No, so, yeah, you, yeah. You can't really accumulate the the really big sins in a week. You got You need to <laughs> have them worked up over. You could. Over, I mean, you could. I, I think you just have to work harder. I think John yeah. Wick manages to rack up a few sins in between visits. <laughs> Uh, here's another feedback question inspired by the pairing of Rachel and Shiva Baby. Uh, this one also winds up with a broad question about cinema. Genevieve, can you take this one? Sure. Ryan from Montreal writes, One connection that didn't come up on your excellent episode discussing Rachel getting married and Shiva Baby is both films being shot digitally. Surprisingly, I found Rachel getting married's mid-aughts era video endearing, despite its obvious visual shortcomings. It provides an aesthetic that almost matches what Cousin Joe's camcorder could have been capturing, without the ugliness of Soderbergh's latest iPhone experiments. A couple of shots even play with this, positioning the camera where Joe's camera would be. Demi's excitement at the possibilities presented by digital technology's mobility and cost-effectiveness coursed through the film, particularly during the wedding. For a moment in 2008, I was briefly optimistic about digital cameras. Fast forward 13 years, and any excitement surrounding digital cinematography has basically vanished. Shiva Baby was shot on the ARRI camera used by so many other movies and lacks much, if any, visual distinction from other recent indie films. Although Shiva Baby's composition isn't clumsy by any stretch, it also doesn't capitalize on the digital opportunity like Rachel Getting Married. The end result is a film that I found visually bland, in sharp contrast to Seligman's superb script and tonal control. Perhaps a subpar virtual cinema stream is coloring my perception. Does this match your experience? How do you feel about digital cinematography in 2021? Do you find the visual sameness of recent films as frustrating as me? I just want to assure everyone that, that I I did not write this letter. <laughs> I was going to throw it right to you, Scott. Right, but, but, Scott. But, I, but I will. But Ryan is, is welcome to, you know, uh, anytime he's in town, if he wants to look me up. I think we would have a lot to, uh, to talk about because uh, everything he is saying in this email makes uh, a lot of sense to me uh, in terms of, uh, you know, I mean, it, he's absolutely right. I think about Shiva Baby. And that was one aspect of, the, of Shiva Baby that we said virtually nothing about. It was like, what, what does it look like? Uh, we, we talked about what it sounded like and how, how well that was part was handled. And uh, we talked about the performances of the script. And I mean, we all really liked that movie quite a bit, but, He's right in the sense that there is a sameness to digital productions. I mean, I think there's kind of digital cameras as they're used today have raised the floor, I think, on how independent films can look. I think they can all look quite good. I mean, even if you're if you're shooting something at home with your phone, it looks pretty good. You know, it looks a lot better than what than what you're shooting with a camcorder or something back in the day. But, you know, I, I question the amount of flexibility you have to make things look a little bit different. You know, I mean, I think you really have to work hard to give uh, a, a film, uh, you know, some, dis you know, a little bit more you know, visual texture and distinction than you might have back in the days of older video or film. Yeah, I mean, I didn't even really think about it 
being shot digitally because I, I just kind of assume everything is for the mm-hmm. unless it's uh david fincher because well no fincher shoots digitally now too doesn't yeah, he? he oh yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Um, he's a, he's mr digital yeah unless it's a nolan movie but but um you know i i will i will say i i, I did very much admire some visual aspects of the film which which has a great handle of character placement and like putting people you know where people are in the room and kind of finding interesting ways to to shoot uh, the protagonist's uh, sense of, of the walls closing in. I mean, it's, it's, not, yeah. it's not an unthoughtful movie when it comes to the, to the visuals, but in terms of like the technical end of it, yeah, it looks like a lot of indie uh, movies uh, as well. So I don't know. I mean, again, though, I don't think it's a movie that gets made without digital. Right. And that's like, I, I kind of wanted to respond to what Ryan says about any excitement surrounding digital cinematography has, has vanished in 2021. And like, I think if you're talking only about what's on, what you're seeing on screen, like in a vacuum, like, yes, I, I, you can make that argument. But the fact is, like, digital technology has allowed a lot of films to get made that couldn't have gotten made on the budget they had or that, like, or how quickly they had to get done. We talked on that episode about how that was shot in like an Airbnb kind of stealth mode, you know, like there's a sort of uh, grip it and rip it mentality that digital uh, allows for. And that I think is probably its biggest contribution to cinema, not its actual visual quality. Yeah, I mean, for me, it really just depends. It ends up depending an awful lot on the lighting. Some people know Mm -hmm. how to light a film well and some don't. And that's where the dynamic range of digital can really have an effect one way or the other. I think the camera just makes a huge difference. You know, when you when you talk about digital uh, shooting as though it's it's all the same camera that ends up just not not really communicating the variety of experiences you can get with different kinds of digital cameras. And when I first started seeing films like shot on the red line of cameras, I was blown away by them. And still to this day, like I like the crispness of uh, of that line of cameras if you're dealing with something that's that's lit really well. Soderbergh's unsane. Uh, I still don't really understand the excitement over that movie, given to the degree to which the whole thing just felt incredibly underlit and grimy and with no color range to it. And it it seemed that that was just a lighting problem. Whereas uh, High Flying Bird, like the lighting is gorgeous and the digital photography there is gorgeous. So to me, it, it makes it's not so much like a film versus digital problem. It's Like, do you know what you're doing when you shoot on digital? There are a lot of digital tricks that people are using over and over and over that I'm not really excited about anymore, like following somebody with a with a tiny camera or strapping a tiny camera onto, for instance, a weapon that somebody's swinging around in a horror movie. But there are also tricks that are being overused that I actually really like, like drone shots, which I am still not tired of establishing drone shots and how different the world looks from way up above on like a really stable camera. So I like I think everybody's mileage is going to vary, but I also think it comes down to not bunging everything in the same basket and complaining it all looks the same when there are a whole lot of different things going on there. I mean, I think the two Soderbergh films you mentioned are totally examples of Soderbergh messing with the form as much as possible. I mean, Unsane is kind of deliberately ugly, I think. Uh, and, and that's something he did before with uh, Full Frontal when, when digital cameras were first circulating. And then, of course, you know, High Flying Bird is, I think, conspicuously shot on a, a phone. And that's very much incorporated in the, into the story of someone trying to disrupt you know the game of professional basketball so uh, that's a little bit different but i think there are examples when when the the glossiness i guess of digital photography is well served by the what's what's going on in the film i think swallow uh the film that we Mm. covered last year was just a really really gorgeous production and and uh the assistant was the same way i think those are two movies that use those tools um very expressively so uh it works sometimes so i don't don't want to paint with too broad a brush but i I like the cut of uh ryan's jib here (laughs) and those are also two movies that just look very very different from each other Mm -hmm. well we always appreciate when our listeners share their thoughts and their recommendations if you feel so inclined we can feature your response on a future episode to reach us you can leave a short voicemail at 773-234-9730 or email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net 
that's it for this episode of The Next Picture Show. In our next episode, we'll leave Chinatown's underworld and head for the even weirder realm of Outworld, the font of endless strange enemies and mortal combat. Look for that episode next Tuesday, or you can subscribe to The Next Picture Show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your podcatcher of choice. If you want to hear us without ads and while surrounded by extra Next Picture Show written and recorded content, come support us at Patreon at patreon.com slash nextpictureshow. Find us at nextpictureshow.net and follow us on Twitter at nextpicturepod so you'll always know when a new episode drops. Until then, when some wild-eyed eight-foot-tall maniac grabs your neck, taps the back of your favorite head up against the barroom wall, and he looks you crooked in the eye, remember what old Jack Burton always does. Shoot your gun into the ceiling and knock yourself unconscious. That'll learn him. Yeah!